Father, we thank you for your goodness, uh, grace, and mercy. We pray that in these moments ahead, you would help us to hear your word. I pray for my own soul uh, that you help me to be clear and to represent you properly. And I'm convinced that your word will have its full course in the life of each person, whatever it may be, some to rebuke, some to comfort, um, everyone hopefully to encourage um, in the faith. And maybe there's some out there, they need to come to faith. They need to come to Christ. They can't live the new life uh, because they don't know the one who gives life. So we ask for your mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you see this image that's here. And I had mentioned it yesterday when we were in Colossians about how we are in a battle and that battle is against sin. The whole theme for these lessons is we need to look to Christ in order to live the new life. But the reality is sometimes, and not really sometimes, every day we're battling with some aspect of sin. And sin can be attractive. Sin has a fragrance to it. And I was sharing how when I was um, on the East Coast uh, recently, and I noticed this plant. And I thought, wow, that really is attractive. But what I also noticed is that it had a fragrance about it that was really attractive. And you can see it's beautiful, isn't it? That beautiful lavender look to it. And you say, wow, I want to put that in my home. I love to have that in a garden. I love to have it next to some trees. But there is a problem with it. It's also deadly. See, sin can be that way. It can be attractive and it can be fragrant. But and it can even have this sense of uh well, I want to participate in that, but yet we don't think about the consequences of it sometimes. It can be deadly. And let me show you this next image, and you'll see. It, you can't see it as well, but you see that plant growing and taking over other plants. And you see it literally. I saw parts of a forest area where the trees along the side had been wiped out because of this. I thought, that's the same plant. But look at the result. That, that same plant that was attractive and, and was fragrant and robust, it, it takes over one's life. And so for all of us, if we're going to live the Christian life, we have to ask ourselves, how do I fight against this? How do I fight against sin? How, how do I live this new life? What is going to be my motivation for living the new life? And yesterday I said it any number of times, how we must be properly motivated. And you'll hear me say that again, even this morning, motivation, motivation. Just by way of review to bring everyone up to date, as we talked about motivation, people are motivated in any choice that they make. That is good and bad choices. We all make good and bad choices every day. There are people that are motivated by lust and by greed and by power, and therefore they motivate that is motivating them, and they make certain choices. And there are people that are motivated by things that are good and honorable. And so that motivates them to make choices as well. What is the motivation? We, we talked about certain images that one may have, and we think even in, in the realm of athletics. And um, Michael Phelps, um, the greatest Olympian ever, 
and gold medals, unbelievable silver medals and records set. But he was motivated so that he could achieve what he did. And I shared some amazing stats by him when he was in full force and training that he would swim 80 kilometers a week. I mean, 13 kilometers a day. And it was amazing what he went through in his regiment to get ready to get into that pool. And then he would finish it off, a day's exercise, he would finish it off with 500 abdominal exercises. I mean, you think about that, just the 500 by itself is enough, right? That's after you swam 13 kilometers. Because he was motivated, I want to be the best ever. And he is considered the best ever. But the thing about him is this. When he would train for all those literally miles upon miles and hours upon hours, and often it would come down to sometimes if it was just a sprint, you're talking about less than a minute for that time that he had trained, even for other Olympians, it's down to nine seconds. For some Olympians in gymnastics, if you're just doing the vault, I mean, it's down to like five seconds. You run down, hit, spring, flip, and it's over with. You train for four years for that five seconds. You're motivated. And in our Christian life, we are training and we're striving so that we can live out the Christian life. We just don't come here to church just to hear scripture just to hear it, we come here so that when we leave here, we can go and we can live the Christian life. So in one sense, I, I want to consider us all Olympians, if you will. And, and this is the training village, if you will. And we're here, we're here to be trained, and then when we go out, we can live our life before the world so that the world can see Christ in us. Is, it not, is that not our purpose for being? Absolutely. And so... We must be properly motivated, but there's something that's fighting against us, and it's called sin. And sometimes maybe our motivation isn't as great. Sometimes you feel like, ah, oh, this is hard. Or maybe you're discouraged. Maybe there's an area of your life you say, will I ever overcome this? Will I ever get rid of this habit? And that's why we need to continually look to Christ. And we discussed briefly, there's a, a problem at the church at Colossae, and false teachers had come amongst the people there, and they were diverting them away from the purity of the faith and from the person of Jesus Christ. And they were telling them, if you, like if you can see it in particular in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, he's telling them there, he's saying, wait a minute, why is it that they're degrading you? Why is it that they're taking away your prize? And what did Paul mean by that, taking away their prize? They're saying, if you can be involved in the self-degrading exercises of your body, if you can be involved in self-made religion, if you can be involved in this philosophy of life, which Paul says really isn't wisdom at all. Some of them were saying, "If well, I've had a vision of angels. And Paul is saying, a vision of angels? What purpose is that? Some were saying, if you could be involved in ceremonies and if you could recognize days and holidays, if you were religious holidays, then that will gain you some sense of satisfaction in standing with God. And Paul says, no, it won't, not at all. By no means will it do that. But man has a tendency to want to achieve on his own, does he not? And that's why the scripture tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. And that's why the scripture tells us that it is 
by grace through faith and not that of yourselves, lest any man should do what? That they should boast. And so this would have been attractive to some of those at Colossae. That's right. I'll beat my body up. That's right. I'll, I'll denounce all of these things. That's right. Paul would say, some of you are telling, well, don't touch this and don't see that. That's right. I'll abstain from those things and I won't eat those meats and I won't eat those foods and I won't go there and I won't do that. And Paul is saying, this is of no good without Christ. And that's how religion can be. It, it gives you a list of all the things, most of the times, what you should not do. Christianity does do that, don't get me wrong. And we're going to look at some of those in a moment. But it's also telling you first, what should you be doing? And you should be looking to Christ. You look to Christ. There's one thing that we know that there is really, especially... Uh, great about the book of Colossians if you were just to read through it and if you were to take a pen or a marker and if you were to look at all the occurrences where you were to see Christ or you were to see him as it refers to Christ or you were to see Jesus or you would see the Lord when it refers to Christ and you'd notice something in the book of Colossians you have 95 verses in the book of Colossians and what's interesting about those 95 verses that they're it, there's an occasion where you find Christ mentioned 54 times in the book of Colossians, 54 times in 95 verses. But we thought something interesting. If you read through the book of Colossians as well, if you're reading through chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 4, you'll notice right there in that section, 46 times Jesus is mentioned. 46 times. And say, wait a minute, what about the other eight occurrences? Well, beginning in chapter 3, verse 5, that's when Paul says, now you need to live this out. Put to death sin. Put away these things and put on these things. And so now, just eight more occurrences, we see Jesus mentioned. You think, wait a minute, why is that? There are a number of verses left. You, you mean from chapter 3, verse 5, all the way to the end of the book, Christ is now only mentioned eight more times? Yes. Because Paul has something in mind, and it is this. It is saying, if you're going to live out this Christian life, you must have a vision of Jesus Christ. So in this concentrated way, he says, it is Christ, it is Christ, it is Christ, it is Christ. So now, be properly motivated. Just like the Olympian, Michael Phelps, his vision was, I want to be the greatest ever. His, his vision was, for the Olympian, I want to be on that Olympic platform. And just like the person that's motivated by things that are evil, they say to themselves, I want to live a large life, they say. I want to have this sort of house, they say. I want to have this lifestyle. So they're motivated by that, and that's their vision. That's what drives them. And Paul is saying it's Christ. So that's why in this series, it's look to Christ to live the new life. And that's why I said earlier, it's impossible for a person to live the, the, the new life unless they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if not, then you're just looking to religion. You're looking to self-effort. You're saying, I can do this. I can conjure up enough, um, you know, internal religion, if you will, to bring this about. See, although those things have a place, that is to say no to sin, to say no to the world, if you're doing it in your own effort, you're going to fail. It's going to be really frustrating. Some of you, before you came to Christ, you may have realized that. Have any of you remember 
you before you really knew the Lord, you were trying to get rid of certain sins and you were battling sins. You were saying, why am I failing so much? Why can I not say no on a consistent basis? Because you're doing it all in your own power. And now, even as a believer, there is still this strain. Even this morning, I was going through, I was in Romans 7, and, and Paul's battle with sin that is there. And Paul talks about, although internally I concur with the law, but in my flesh, there is a contradiction. So what he, Paul is saying, right now, I can concur with the law internally because I'm a believer, but I still have this battle with my flesh. Now, I, I know that I'm not the only one. Um, in the Tampa area today that battles with the flesh. Do you not battle with the flesh as well? Absolutely. You may have had a battle this morning, right? And that's why we have to look to Christ through the person. Let me share some things with you that I've already shared yesterday from verses 1 to 4. What do we notice in verses 1 to 4 in this great passage? As Paul has communicated, again, what does he say Therefore, if you've been raised, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above. He says, you have died, but your life is hidden. That is, it's secure with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, he says, he is the substance of our life. He is the foundation of our life. When he is revealed, we're going to be revealed with him in glory. So we think about Christ coming back again. Here's this reality that we will be with him because we will be changed. So what we've said already was that, first, we need to grasp the reality of our new life. We need to grasp that reality. I am a new person in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the first part of verse 1. We need to grasp that. And then secondly, we need to grasp the person of our new life. Not only the reality of the new life, but we need to grasp the person. That is, we need to take hold of Christ. Who is Christ? And we noted even any number of titles that you see throughout the book of Colossians and who Christ is that are lofty and great. And these things are so important and what you must do is that you need to learn to meditate on the person of Christ and who he is. And this is a lost art in Christianity. That is meditation. It's like we've sort of given meditation up to Eastern mysticism. And that is, that is ours. You cannot help but read through, especially in the Old Testament, in the psalmist, he talks about meditating on God's word and musing on God's works and thinking about his great deeds. And all of us here today, you have some testimony where you can look back and say, God is a great God. Let me reflect on his goodness and his greatness towards me. Absolutely. See, we need to think about the person of our life and grasp it. And I use the word grasp. That is, you have to take hold of it. It is not something that you, you handle lightly. I mean, you hold on to it. I was, um, had a chance uh, yesterday. Um, I visited in the evening, visited because I grew up in Orlando. Uh, drove over to Orlando last night, saw some family. And we were watching a little football there. And, and um, you know, I, I played college football myself, and I, play, I was a defensive guy. Um, and one thing that um, I, I still kind of have that boyish part in me because I saw someone get hit and uh, forgive me, but I was like, wow, great hit. That was really, really good. <laughs> I just, wow, man, you haven't played football in how many decades and it's still sort of in my blood, right? And I got a little worked up there a little bit. I said, calm down, you're preaching tomorrow, right? Get in the right <laughs> mode. 
<laughs> and then I was, the one guy was running, and he had the ball. He says, man, you got to strip him. you got to knock the ball out. But you saw the guy. He knew they, the other team needed the ball. He held on to it for dear life. He was grasping it. He was grasping it. He was holding on to it. He wasn't showboating. You see some of these guys running with one hand. You don't do that. That football is important. And a guy like me back in the day, I'm going to hit your hand. I'm going to knock it out. You're going to turn it over. See, the things that are important in life, you grasp it and you hold on to it. The question is for you this morning is you need to grasp the reality of your new life. You need to grasp the person of your new life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let it go. The world wants to take that away from you. The world wants you to fumble. Now, notice when you fumble spiritually, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But the world wants you to fumble. And what you got to do once you fumble, you go to the sideline and say, Lord, I fumble. But I need to get back out there in the game. I need to pick my head up again. I need to fix my heart and my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the other thing you need to understand from those first verses is you need to grasp the direction of your new life. The direction of your new life. Because he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. See, that's the direction of your new life. It is totally absolutely opposite of what what it was before see things have changed so now what is my direction if you're going to live for christ you think i have a new direction in life and then here's the other thing you need to grasp is this in verses three and four grasp the rationale for your new life the rationale for your new life and what do i mean by that notice what he says here's the rationale the reason you should be looking to christ to live this new life the reason your heart should be different is this for See, that's the rationale. You have died. For your life is hidden. It is secure. For, in verse 4, Christ is your life. Because you're going to be revealed with him. So you have to say to yourself, why should I be so motivated to live this life? Well, there's a rationale behind it. I've died. And I have a new life. I have a new life that's hidden with God. I have a new life that's going to be revealed one day. I will see him again. Now, what are some things we should notice? Let's break this down a little bit. And I didn't even do this yesterday, but I want to do it now. Let's break down those thoughts in verses 3 and 4. What we should notice this in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3a, it says what? For you have died. So we need to realize this. My old life's power is gone. Sin no longer has a power over my life. Any power that it has, I give it. I surrender it. Sin cannot force me to do anything. I surrender that to the power of sin. That power has been broken. And Paul is saying here, wait a minute. Of course you need to look above because you have died. That is, the implication of that is that the power of your past is gone. Because now you have died and now you have life. What else does he want them to understand? Your new life promise is secure. Your new life's promise is secure. Because what does he say? Our life is hidden with Christ in God. That is secure, is it not? Now notice the image. It's hidden, but not only hidden with Christ, and then it's in God. 
so doubly secure. Just not hidden somewhere in some spiritual strata, but it is hidden with Christ in God. Nothing can take it away. It's like that guy that I saw holding that fumble. Absolutely. He was not going to let anyone take that ball away from him. And with you, no one can take away your new life. Isn't that a great uh, reality? I mean, it's really unfortunate that people that teach that you can lose your salvation. Imagine sort of living that way. I mean, imagine that when you do fumble, you're like, okay, I guess I've lost my faith. Let me start over again. The scripture tells us we all stumble in many ways. It says, no, it's hidden. It's secure. So you should say, wait a minute. That's the motivation for me to live out this life because God has secured it for me. Nothing can take it away from me. And here's a, a, a fourth thing about, the, or a third thing about this rationale. Your new life's presence is awaiting. Verse 4, because we're going to be revealed with him. I mean, think about that for a moment. What a great day that's going to be. Christ revealed in heaven, but not only is he revealed, but we're going to be revealed with him because we will be like him. Is anyone here this morning um, looking forward to the day when you're going to be transformed and changed, right? Amen. Um, boy, just from the standpoint of just the physical part being transformed. Now, some of you young people don't understand that yet because, you know, you're young, you bounce around, you're full of energy, nothing aches on you. Um, you know, you don't have to rub anything on you to feel better. <coughs> you don't even have to warm up when you play, right? You're like, you don't even have to stretch. But a day is coming, right? A day is coming. Last night I was at my sister's place and I moved my leg and she says, oh, I heard something. It's like it's cracking nowadays, right? And that wasn't popcorn. That was my knee from an old injury that I have. I'm thinking, wow, time is changing. But one day I will be transformed. And not just the physical, but the great part is the spiritual. Imagine that one day you will not sin again. One day you won't have to get counsel and say, how do I deal with this issue? One day you won't have to listen to preaching anymore because you are absolutely sanctified. One day there will, be, there will never be another tear that you can shed and say, God, forgive me, I failed you again. I've fallen into this sin. All of that will be over with. One day you will never have to apologize again. You will never have to say to a person, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I don't know why I said it the way that I did. Can you forgive me? I'm sorry that I spoke to you that way. Can you forgive me? Never again will you have to do that. But the reality is right now we still have to, don't we? So the question is, how am I going to live this out? How am I going to not let this fragrance, this attraction of sin, strangle out my life and make me fumble? I have to look to Christ. See, that's what we see in the first part of it. And we're going to pick it up now a bit and move ahead as we continue to think about living out this Christian life. I, I want us to think this way. If you can, if we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. You can show this next slide. And in Colossians, there are some great truths that are here. Because Paul tells them in verse 5 that you need to put to sin or put sin to death. And he says you need to get rid of immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire, greed, 
which amounts to idolatry. And it says one reason you need to do that because these sins reflect God's wrath. That is, God's wrath is going to fall on those who practice those sins, and you're not going to experience God's wrath. Therefore, avoid them. And then he says you need to put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice. And he says you should not lie to one another. And we come to this next portion here. He says, I need to live this Christian life. I am a person of integrity. How can I live in this pattern if I have been changed? And that's what he says, since you have laid aside, do not lie to one another. See, there's a relationship between sanctification and justification. What he is saying here is that first you have denounced the evil of the past. Therefore, your direction is different. And then what he says in verse 10, you have accepted the renewal of the present and the future. What do I mean by that? Notice verse 10. He says, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And what does he mean by this? See, in the past, there was, uh, obviously, we were clothed in sin. And in the Christian life, now we're putting on the new. And the word is a very literal sense of it. Just as we put on our garments, we, now we put on something that is new in our lives. But what happens sometimes is this. People can, people can put Christ on top of their past. Um, recently, I was, um, when I, we moved as we came back to Grace Church and we decided we wanted to be closer, so we moved to a certain area and um, we decided the, the bed that my wife and I got when we were newlyweds, now we've been married, you know, 23 years now, it was time for a new bed. So I started to look around and found one. I thought, I, I, I found one that I liked a lot, but the color was wrong. The color was totally wrong. So I said, okay, I bought it anyway. And then what did I do? I went over to Lowe's uh, in the Home Depot got sanding paper, got a new, um, a, a new drill. Yeah, I actually got a drill and put an attachment on it so I could sand it down, and then got a painter, and we got with my boys. We closed down the garage, made it into a shop, and we repainted it. Now, initially, my boys who hadn't done that before, they said, Dad, why are you sanding it down? Why don't we, can't, can't we just paint over it? I said, no, you can't. We need to bring it down to the original so it'll look much better when we put the paint on. And says, what can also happen, based on the sort of paint that could have been on there, I'm not sure, then that can even start to bleed through. So I was, okay, wow. And I said, here's an example. So I took one portion of it, and we didn't sand it down at all, and I just painted over it. And I said, how does that look? And I said, oh, it didn't look very good. I got one section, we sanded it down, had it nice and smooth, and I painted over it. It says, how does that look? Oh, that looks really nice. He listened to dad, man, right? So we sanded it down, and then we put on the new coat. And what we must do in our Christian lives, let me look to Christ and God through the power of the Holy Spirit as we strive for Christ. He is sanding us down. And then now he says, now put on Christ. Put on humility. Put on these attributes so you can live the Christian life. And that's what he's, being, that's what he's saying here. And it's according to a true knowledge. And what's interesting here, he says true knowledge. Why would Paul say that? I think in part he's saying it because those false teachers at Colossae are saying here is knowledge. Ceremony is knowledge. Degrading the body is knowledge. Philosophy is knowledge. And he says, no, it's not. This is a true knowledge according to the one who 
created him. So that's what he's communicating here. It's genuine knowledge. It's grounded in a divine image. What's the divine image? He says very plainly, it's according to the one who created him. That's, again, what I'm telling you this morning and yesterday. We look to Christ. He is the bar. He sets the standard. It's grounded in divine inclusion. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 11 in Colossians 3. He says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian. He says, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is in all, is all, and in all. So divine inclusion means what? Everyone's included in. And this is great. The church has changed. When was the last time I was here? Was it two, three years ago, I think? It was about three years ago, maybe. Could it be even four? I think it was four years ago. And this is great looking out on the faces here. I see people that I didn't see before. And I see what? Inclusion. Do you not look around? What do you see? You see inclusion. Do you not? People from different backgrounds, their, their heritage from different backgrounds. Because we are all a part of what? One body, are we not? And what he's saying here is, we are different people, behave like that different people. There's divine inclusion. We're all a part of this together. And then it's also grounded in Christological accomplishment. What do I mean by that? That last part of the statement in verse 11. What does he say? But Christ is all and in all. He is superior. Christ is the one that brings about life. Not you and your effort. It can never accomplish it. Here's the next thought I want us to see. You can go to that next slide, and it's this. When we look at this passage, now in verses 12 to 17, it sort of brings us up to date, if you will, although what I just shared with you was new, and some of the other thoughts were new as well, that we need to honor Christ by putting on the virtues of faith. We honor Christ by putting on the virtues of faith. How are you going to clothe yourselves? That's what we see in verses 12 to 17. Now Paul is going to say, He's already told them in verses 5 through 11, put these things off, immorality and impurity and greed. He says they all amount to idolatry. Put away anger and malice and wrath. Put those things away. Now put something on. And that's what's important. Because sometimes in religion, what people may do, and even in genuine Christianity, um, we have to understand that it's always a matter of putting off and putting on. When Paul said to Timothy, he says, um, he gave him advice, and he, he said it this way. You need to flee from these things, but you need to do what? Pursue this. Peace, love, righteousness. Sometimes a person can find themselves struggling a little bit because they're focusing so much on putting off, but they're not focusing on putting on what you're striving for. And that's what we see. And then he's going to say, now here's the way in which you practice these virtues of faith. Now, we won't get there to 318, we're going to focus right now on 12 to 17. Look at 12, verse 12 of Colossians, verse 12. The first thing we need to note is this in verse 12. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, whoever has a a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, let's begin to break this down. Notice another transition. In verse 12, he says, so, in that statement, or it could be therefore, 
in view of what I just told you now, this is your response to it. This is who you are. And what he says here is this. There is a boundless justification for the command. What do I mean by that? Okay, Paul, you're telling me to put these things on. What's your justification for that? What, what's your rationale for that? How can you command me to do that? And why would you command me to do it? Well, the answer is right there. Notice what he says in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And pause right there. See, that's his justification. I can tell you to put on this new life, just as I told you in verse 12, you need to, uh, in verse 5, I'm sorry, you need to put sin to death. It's because you're chosen. You're holy and beloved. Chosen of God, that's an important word. We see Israel was chosen of God. He, they, Israel was God's chosen people to do what? To be a light to the nations. And we know Israel failed repeatedly to be that light. And then now there is Jesus Christ who is the chosen one. And Jesus Christ does what Israel could not do, and he did it perfectly. And now here we are as God's people. We're following that chosen one. We are a chosen people. And so we're to emulate Christ. And that's why we look to Christ and say, how did Christ behave as the chosen one? I need to behave as the chosen people. And then he says, you're holy. What does it mean to be holy? When we think about God, the scripture says God is holy, holy, holy. Not just talking about God is unstained from sin, but as God is separate, he is distinct, he is unique. And we need to be a people who are distinct and unique. People need to look at us and say, there's something different about you. How you deal with suffering and difficulty is not the way that I would. It's not the way that others do. Your marriage seems to be different than mine. You guys talk about, you, do have, you talk about having issues in your marriage, but you guys forgive one another. You don't give each other the silent treatment. How, how do you do that? How, how do you love someone unconditionally? Well, then we look to Christ, do we not? Because what does Christ tell us? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the chosen one. Be holy, be separate, be distinct. And he says that last word, beloved. Now just stop for a moment and consider that. What God is saying to you even this morning is this, I love you. You're my child. Won't you, why won't you follow me? I've given you the power to follow me. I've chosen you from amongst all these other people. And some of you in your family, you may be the only Christian. Maybe you're one of few Christians in your family. And you say to yourself, why me? You know, I have there eight in my family. One, my oldest sister, she's with the Lord. Um, other sisters are here of a brother. Um, so why me and not my brother? Why my kids that know the Lord and I, why some of my nieces and nephews don't know the Lord? Because God chose because of his grace. And you should be, let me tell you something. You should be thankful every moment of your life that God has chosen you. It was not in your own effort. You could not devise this. You could not satisfy God. And he has chosen you. And what God has said, I've chosen you. Live out this Christian life. You're holy. And then he says, I love you. 
it's an amazing thing, you know, as a parent or, you know, as a husband, the power of just sometimes just saying, I love you. I love you. Sometimes people don't hear that. And I like that Mike has a habit of that, and he means it, and he just doesn't say it. But recently I was traveling my, uh, at Grace Community Church. I, um, I also have several responsibilities, but one is I shepherd one of the uh, fellowship groups that, that meet, and they meet during the time which the main service meets in large groups. And I was traveling in New York, and um, I was actually um, in Times Square, and I thought, let me send my group a message, and, and I video something, and I drop box it to them to say, hello, miss you guys, don't like not being there. And, um, and I said, hey, I love you guys, I'll see you next week. And it was very interesting, and I, you know, I didn't think much about it. And I got back the next week, and people said, wow, you said you loved us. Yeah, okay. And I've never, you know, that's sort of, it was unusual for people. God is saying, I love you. I love you. Put on these virtues and live out the Christian life. See, that's the, that's the justification for the command. It's who you are. You're chosen, you're holy, and beloved. Then there's the bonding virtues of the command. What, what do I mean by that? He says, now what do I need to put on? And he, those are the virtues, compassion. And let me give them to you rapidly. Compassion, it means I have some sense of, of pity that I might show towards a person. Something stirs inside of me, and I want to do something for them. You look to the Gospels, and Jesus had compassion, and he would heal. Jesus had compassion. He would give sight to the blind. Jesus had compassion, and he would feed. And it's literally the word going back to the Old Testament. It's something that stirs up inside of you. Compassion. He says, put that on. Then he says, kindness. That is, you have to take your compassion and you actually are useful to people. Acts of kindness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, you also need to put on humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourselves in humility. Now, that can be a hard virtue, can't it? Because our tendency is, what is the opposite of humility? It is most definitely pride, is it not? And all of us, in some measure, struggle with pride. But the scripture tells us plainly we need to put on humility. Why should we put on humility? Because that's the example of Christ, right? Philippians 2. Now, let me say this to you. Um, I've heard people say, and I think it's uh, an errant teaching, that, well, we, we shouldn't think about putting on humility that much. And when we grow in humility, we shouldn't recognize that we've grown in humility because then that becomes prideful. No. No. Think about it for a moment. It's in this list, right? Compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Can't we see when we grow impatience, right? Now, we can also determine that by when we're impatient. But we can see, I'm, I'm getting better at this. When it comes to gentleness, that is, to touch, to deal with person, a person in a way that's meek, that's gentle, not harsh. We can see, okay, I'm becoming more gentle. Our kindness, I see that I'm helping people. Our compassion, I have a heart for people. And then somehow we're going to leave humility out and say we can't see humility? Now, we don't, obviously don't boast in it, but we should be able to see it. If Paul told us to put it on, there should be some way for us to say, I think I'm growing in humility. One way that most likely you can see it is when other people tell you that you're growing in humility. When your wife says, you're becoming more humble, praise the Lord. Uh, when you say to your wife, sweetie, you're becoming more humble. Praise the Lord. 
Or when your kids say, Dad, you, you seem to be a humble guy. Or when you say to your kid, son, daughter, pride is, gonna, is destructive. Grow in humility. You can see them grow in humility. And humility is not the sense in which we have this bad view of ourselves and we're forever repeating what we aren't and what we can't do and what we can't accomplish. Actually, that's an element of pride. And why is that an element of pride? Because you're thinking so much about yourself and you're not thinking about God and what God can do through you. It becomes self-focused. Humility means you have a right perspective on yourself and you realize that anything that you accomplish is only because of the grace of God. Some people say, well, a humble person is a person that's shy and they never have an opinion. Where is that? I, I just wonder sometimes, where do we get these ideas and concepts from? And then they make their way, they make their way into books, and sometimes they make their way into, into pulpits. Because if Christ is the ultimate example of humility, was not Christ bold? Did he not at times go, did he not go into the temple and overturn the money changers? Did he not get a cord and whip at people and drive them out? Did he not say to the religious leaders, you whitewashed tombs? That's boldness. But at the same time, did he not lay down his life as a ransom for many? At the same time, did he not wash the feet of the disciples? Did he not sit at the well with that woman and speak to her, although she was a woman and a Samaritan? Now, humility involves all of those elements, most definitely. And so what else do we see here? So we put on these things, these virtues, and then he says, what other virtues? Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, whoever, whoever has a complaint, just as. And see, there's that motivation again. I do it. Because the Lord has forgiven me. Question for you this morning is this. How many of you have been forgiven great sins this morning? And everyone would have to say what? Amen. Amen. And this is now go back to motivation just as. And so when we do not forgive, we are saying to God, my standard is higher than yours. Now, you may have forgiven me, but I'll never forgive him. You may have forgiven me, but I will never forgive forgive you because they've hurt me too deeply hurt 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 how much did we hurt God how much pain did we cause God a God that is holy and he says just as forgive and the only way you can do it is to have these other virtues that are living in your life then he says notice verse 14 there's this one virtue that pulls it all together. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So love pulls it together, is what he is saying. And again, we look to Christ, who loved us with selfish love. Then what else do we see in this passage? As now Paul has said, okay, we look to Christ, verses 1 to 4. He's told us in verses 5 to 11, we need to kill sin. And then he tells, us, he tells us in 12 to 14, put on all of these virtues. Don't just paint over your past. Put these things off and put Christ on. And then he sort of ends with this flurry of thoughts, he says. As well, he, he tells them in verse 15, there's a controlling reign of peace. That is, let peace dwell in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. 
how do I let peace rule in my hearts? In my heart, that is. Well, part of it, uh, you meditate on these things. It's the, it's the thought of a Philippians 4 and 8, the things that are good and pure and right. We meditate on it, then peace can rule in my heart. I realize that, wait a minute, I don't have to be worried about my future because I'm going to be revealed with Christ in the future. That gives me a peace. And then he says, as well, when I have that, there's going to be peace in the body. I shared yesterday how many churches have been torn apart because of the, the vices of the flesh, slander and clamor and abusive speech. But if there's peace among us, then there's going to be harmony. Notice what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So we come here to hear God's word that it would affect our hearts, but notice what he says, let it richly dwell within you. Let it be in you. Let it settle into your heart. And um, I was sharing how right now, 27 days through the New Testament, and I was mapping out, the reason I was doing I was mapping out my reading for next year, and how many times I want to go through scripture, and you say, why am I mentioning this, mentioning this to you? Here's why. Sometimes the tendency can be someone that's in my position, you know, I, I teach at a certain level, have a certain amount of degrees, but let me tell you something, friends. Nothing is as sweet to me as I had this morning where I just can get my Bible and just read it. Just read it. And just read it. And I would share with some of my students. They said, well, do you study when you read? I said, no. Not when I just have my Bible reading. I don't even, I don't look up words. I don't cross-reference. I don't do any, I just read it. And so Sunday I'll finish. I started in the 1st of November. I'll finish the New Testament. Read it. And I was mapping out, okay, how many times do I want to try to do the Old Testament, the New Testament next year just to read it? Because I want it to just dwell in me. I want it to come out of me. And you don't have to be degreed to do that. You don't have to have any letters behind your name to do that. You don't have to be associated with the seminary or with the Bible college or with a well-known church to do that. What you have to be is a Christian who wants to live the new life and live it to its fullest. See, there's a fragrant re weed that's out there, and it's sin. And it's seeking to choke you out. And one way that you can counter it is that you let the word of God dwell in you richly. Read the word of God. I encourage you. Just get on a program, 2017. Say, you know, I'm going to go through God's word like this. And let nothing distract you. Find a time you can let it have its effect in your life. When you see here, with it comes wisdom and admonishing and singing from the heart. Why are you going to sing from the heart? Because the word of God is in you, and it's reminding you of who Christ is. Some of the sweetest times I've had is it's just reflecting on scripture. When I'm on the road driving, sometimes I'm, I'm going back and forth, and I'm thinking about a scripture and reflecting on that scripture. Let it dwell in your heart so you can live the new life. And then the last verse, the last verse we see here, this, what we will say is the all-encompassing rule of life. What do I mean by the all-encompassing rule of life? Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, that's all-encompassing. It touches every area of our life. 
the thought, obviously, that will come to mind, right, is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Um, and what does it tell us? What does 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tell us? That's right. We do all, right? Whether you do word or deed, sleeping, eating, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. That was my mom's favorite verse. And my mom passed when I was seven. It's very, very interesting how you can, traditions based on how a person lived, their life can live on. And it was, well, your mom was like this, and your mom was like that, and this was her favorite verse. And that stuck with me. I don't remember when someone first told me that, that 1 Corinthians 10, 31 was her favorite verse, but it's like been with me forever. I think they may have told me when I was like in junior high school. And that makes so much sense. Because, see, that touches every aspect of your life. You do everything for the glory of God. You have your marriage to the glory of God. You live as a single person to the glory of God. You work to the glory of God. You come here and you worship to the glory of God. You serve to the glory of God. You raise your kids to the glory of God. Kids obey their parents to the glory of God. And you're, you go to your whatever sphere of influence, you live out your life to the glory of God. So that's why I say it's the all-encompassing sort of principle of life. And so he ends this whole passage by saying, he starts by look to Christ, and he ends by saying, whatever you do, do it all in his name. Now, the wording here is different. He says all in his name. Why does he say in his name? Well, we're supposed to pray in his name, are we not? And when you do all in his name, what is it saying? Live your life consistent with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Name is important. You see it in Scripture. The Scripture talks about worshiping his holy name your name is to be honored your name is above all names why is that and he will bestow on him the name which is above all names why name why in the old testament would they name someone here here is god does not hear here is god is rejoicing here is god provides a name was significant because attached to that name were principles and ideas and standards and so you must ask yourself a question, as I live this new life, I need to live it according to his name. Growing up, one bad thing about, you know, my, my dad was known in the community was people knew that I was a Hargrove. So guess what would happen if I got in trouble, people? You know what would happen? You're a Hargrove. I'm going to tell your dad. And at times that would happen. Or if I was doing well and, and I got, you know, um, especially in college after I got saved and I came back and people would hear how my life had changed and they would say, your dad would be proud of you. Your mom would be proud of you. You've done well by their name. Their name. And I say to my boys now, my, I have five kids, my, you know, three in college, two teenagers at home. And at times I've had a conversation with them. You're a Hargrove. We don't do things that way. I've had that conversation. This is not just for illustration standpoint right now. I've said, you're a Hargrove. You're a man. Hargroves, we work, and we work hard. That's what you do. No, I'm not paying for that. You want it? I'll go 50-50 with you. You go work. You go rake some leaves. You go take out, you know, go work at your Auntie Sarah's house and take out the trash over there. Then I'll go 
None of this is given away. You're hard grown. This is how we do things. And at times, growing up, the boys getting a little bit too rough with their sister. Well, you're a hard grown. We don't do that. You don't, even if you're playing around, you don't lay your hands on a, on a girl. You don't do that. You're a hard grown. That madness may happen in the world, but never in this house. Never. And I got about an inch away from his face like that. He'll never forget it. Never forget it. Talk about putting a fear of somebody in him, right? <laughs> then afterwards, he got it. I saw he was starting to break down. Hey, but I love you because we're a hard grown. You get what I'm saying? We're hard. I love you. In his name. Will you live according to his name? Will you leave this place according to his name? See, that's the all-encompassing rule of life. And then this last thought, let me give it to you, the last part of verse 17, the all-encompassing role of Christ. So the rule and then the role, the role of Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That last, what I want you to see just briefly, through him. What's my last thought? You cannot live, you cannot do any of this with any success unless it's through him. Says, how do I live this life? Through him. How do I battle with sin? Through him. How do I put off? Through him. How do I put on? Through him. What do I put on? Learn through him. It is through him. That's how you live the Christian life. You look to Christ, the one who is above, the one who is seated at the right hand of God, who has accomplished God's will and you say that's my model and you look to other people who are imitating Christ because Paul said 1 Corinthians 11 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ and if you don't have someone in your life that you can look to to imitate you need to find someone and if you're around people who are not imitating Christ and now you're starting to imitate them lose them lose them This is our calling. You're chosen, holy, and beloved. So put on the new life so that you can be an example for those outside that need life. Amen.